Ready? It's five two. All set up. Okay. So, is, are we still missing a few people? Uh, yes. Okay. Okay, yes. And I hope you all enjoyed the visit to my bedroom. <laughs> I've got the most visited bedroom in the world. <laughs> but anyway, that is where I live. It's not a, just a tourist attraction. Because I'm staying over here right now, it's possible to go and visit over there. But, you know, when I'm in Bodhinyana Monastery, that's why I hang out in my cave. And it's very dark. But that, you don't need light when you're meditating. And it's also it's incredibly safe. So I'm not afraid of anything in there. And lastly, it's silent. And that's the best thing. I often say when I'm on a retreat, I could be sitting in there, and if there's all, um, if Kim Jong-un sends a missile to bomb our monastery, I wouldn't know a thing. The concrete on top of that cave is so thick. And you've got the rocks as well, and the design being like a dome. So it's so safe in there. So silent, so um, dark, nothing can penetrate. And even those doors, they lock from the inside. So if any of those monks want to come and get me, they might bang on the outer door and I can't hear it, and they can't open it. So it means that I'm secluded and safe, even from monks. And sometimes having something like that as a senior monk is really helpful. It gives me the, the sense that I can let go of my responsibilities and meditate in the cave. I, I don't... It's interesting that I was just thinking, I was saying there's no internet connection in there, but actually I don't really know. I've never tried it. So the internet and stuff... That's outside in offices. In cave, that's an internet-free zone. So you can go in there and just um, be calm and quiet. Even here in Jhana Grove, when we first selected this spot to build this Jhana Grove uh, retreat centre, we checked it out and it had very bad connection with the internet. Yeah! And it was because we, we kind of wondered why. And the reason why was that it was a, a tower, a mobile phone tower, just close by. But we found out one of their engineers told us they'd actually blocked off that tower from receiving signals uh, in the eastern direction, because that's where Carnot Prison Farm was. So even the prisoners couldn't get decent connections. I thought that was quite interesting. But anyway, that uh, if anybody does want... I shouldn't, I shouldn't say this. I think I said this already. If you ever do want to get a, a mobile phone connection or internet connection, there are spots. And I think people who have been here before know where those spots are. They can get a decent connection.
So if you see somebody else, they've got their hand phone, they're walking... Like I'm not saying. <laughs> you know, they figured out where they can get more bars on their cell phone. OK. Anyway, that's just ad-libbing until we get to 4 o'clock, which is about now. So here we go with today's Dhamma talk on the suttas. Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa so today, I'm uh, going to be reading out one of my favourite suttas. Again, there's many favourite suttas, but this particular one is called the uh, Exposition on Non-Conflict. It's uh, not just about how to avoid conflict, it's also about one of the important things is how to understand what pleasure is. I've been mentioning this a few times about when you have the five sense pleasures, they are to be uh, wary of. But when it comes to the, uh, the mental pleasures, they are to be, not be afraid of them. So anyway, it'll all come clear in a moment. But first of all, we have the um, introduction almost like a, a brief summary of what the suitor is going to be about. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Buddha was living at Sawati in Jeta's Grove, Anatta Pindaka's Park. There the Buddha addressed the Sangha thus. Bhikkhus, Venerable Sir, they replied, and the Buddha said this, I shall teach you an exposition of non-conflict. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, Venerable Sir, they replied. And the Buddha said this, One should not pursue sensual pleasure, which is low, vulgar, coarse, ignoble and unbeneficial. And we should not pursue asceticism, which is painful, ignoble and unbeneficial. The middle way discovered by the Buddha avoids both extremes. Giving vision, knowledge, it leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbāna. And that's the, the first thing he's going to be talking about. But before I go further, when it says sensual pleasure, as I mentioned this morning, that's karma, sukha, alikāna yoga. And the karma sukha there, the pleasure of the five senses, that's what that word means, karma sukha, and which is low. You know what the word is for low in Pali? Hina. So when we have the word actually hina yana, the low vehicle, that is actually quite derogatory and offensive. And I remember somebody showing me a, a new edition 
of the Oxford English Dictionary. And it said in there that Hinayana was like Theravada Buddhism. And then I actually wrote to the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary and I said, look, this is actually offensive to Buddhists, uh, Theravada Buddhists. It's not like a small vehicle. That's actually not the, the real meaning of the word. Even though that sometimes we have fun with that small vehicle. I remember many years ago in Singapore that um, there was some big Buddhist function. And at that time, the prime minister was uh, Prime Minister Go and his wife, I forget what her name was. But anyway, they were sort of uh, mentioning that why can't we have some of these uh, ceremonies and talks in English? I forget who it was, one of the presidents of the BF said, well, we can arrange that. You know, we often have English language teachings. So the next time I got to Singapore, that we had the... Uh, president's wife came along to a ceremony. And that was, it was in uh, Porkaksi Monastery. And there, when I gave a, uh, gave a little talk, I was saying that, you know, the Hinayana is very helpful over in Singapore because small vehicles find it much easier to get parking. <laughs> and... I think that may have been one of the first times actually she heard sort of, you know, the laughter, the making jokes uh, in Buddhism. Because I also recall going to Hong Kong, the first time I went to Hong Kong in a monastery there. And you know who, what I'm like. You know, if you can explain something in an in a amusing way, I will do that. And so after the retreat was over, there was this um, really nice uh, Mahayana nun. You know, she's quite elderly. And she came to say thank you at the end of my uh, retreat. And a special thank you. And I said, why? And he said, because I was watching you during this retreat and you tell funny stories and make people laugh and I could laugh as well. He said, before you came to this monastery, I was not allowed to laugh. I think that was inappropriate for a Buddhist nun to do. And so thank you. Now after you came, I can laugh. And if they say, why are you laughing? I tell them, go and see Ajahn Brahm, he'll explain it. So it was a wonderful thing to do, to be able to give that happiness. So anyway, the <coughs> Well, the word Hina means a low vehicle. And when I mentioned that to the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, I gave all the supporting evidence, you know, from photocopying in those days, uh, from all of the Buddhist dictionaries we had, even from the Sanskrit Dictionary. It's actually a term of offence. It's not just low, it means hopeless, terrible, um, disgusting, not just small. And uh, it was also at that time, I think uh, Professor Warder was at Oxford. Was it Warder? Or Gombrich. Richard Gombrich was there. And so I, with his permission, I gave the editor the contact details of Richard Gombrich. 
and so they could change that in the Oxford English Dictionary. That was such hard work. <laughs> but anyway, it was done. So, Hina, Vulgar, Gamma, Course. When it says Course here, Potujanico, it is... Uh, this is uh, the word they always use for those who haven't been enlightened yet in Pali. It literally means of the ordinary folk. Ignoble, anarya, and unbeneficial. And so one should not pursue these things. And somebody asked me, how do you know you're pursuing the right way? Because if it is the right way, the middle way, it gives vision, gives knowledge, it leads to peace. The first two are very hard to judge. Everybody thinks they are wise. I thought that's a human condition. Often, uh, in a big talk, I sometimes tell people that half of your children, you know, your children, half of them are, are below average intelligence. Of course! That's what average means. Half are below and half above. But you think, oh no, not my children. My children are all above average intelligence. It can't be. Average means you know, the middle. So we do have a, a conceit that you know, we are above... Our, what about people here? How many of you, be honest, are above average intelligence? <laughs> okay. <coughs> you all think you are. But of all the people in this room, half of you have to be below average intelligence. That's what average means. But this is one of the troubles when we have an ego, we have conceit, and we avoid the truth. There's nothing wrong with being below average intelligence. Average. Some people are more more average than average. (laughs) And some people are less average than average. (laughs) So anyway, those vision and knowledge, that is not as important as it leads to peace. Upasamaya. Upasamaya means it calms down. It leads to more sense of peace and stillness. And that is quite obvious. It's easier to see peace than it is to see wisdom. And to direct knowledge, abhinya, that means almost like the personal experience. You know, when somebody asked me just recently, you know, do you believe in rebirth, reincarnation? And if you don't believe in it, you know it. And that's totally different. So this is to direct knowledge to enlightenment, sambodhi, and I mentioned that word earlier, the happiness. So, Ajahn, the first knowledge, just giving knowledge, is not direct knowledge. Yeah, giving, I've got giving vision, yeah. It's, yeah, you see, they're connected. Abhinya is a shortened force of nyatna. So it's abhi, his mind, like really deep, direct. It's just knowledge, yeah. And to 
direct, deep, deep knowledge. Yeah, that's the second one. To enlightenment and to nibbana. So that's actually how you know that your practice is going in the right direction. Is it leading to peace? To a sense of freedom? So all the things which you learn, you know, what you take as knowledge, but is it really direct knowledge? You know, say when people are sitting by the lake and they see lights, they're not imagining that that's real. And next one. One should know what it is to extol and what it is to disparage. Actually, to praise and blame. I should have changed those words some time ago. What it is to praise and what it is to criticize. And knowing both, one should neither... Uh, actually, it's extol. One should neither praise nor disparage, but should teach only the Dhamma. These are only like the headings, like the index of what's going to come. Number three is one should know how to define pleasure. And knowing that, the translation here is one should pursue pleasure within oneself. That's what the Buddha is telling you. What the heck does that mean? Is this Buddhism just for hedonists who want a happy time? We'll find out in a moment. One should not utter covert speech. Like, like hidden speech, and one should not utter overt, sharp speech, which is you know, right in front of the person's face. Now, this is one thing which I must always remember. One should speak unhurriedly, not hurriedly. Because sometimes people say they can't even understand what I said because I was speaking too fast and their English was not that good. What did I say, Ajahn so speak unhurriedly. And the last one, one should not insist on local language and one should, one should not override normal usage. This is a summary of the exposition of non-conflict. And now the Buddha goes into more detail what these things are. One, one should not pursue sensual pleasure which is low, vulgar, coarse, ignoble, and unbeneficial. And one should not pursue asceticism, which is painful, ignoble, and unbeneficial. So it was said. And with reference to what was this said? Uh, where's it gone? The pursuit of pleasure, which is that is linked to central desires, the five sense desires, is a state beset by suffering, vexation, despair, and fever. It is the wrong way. Disengagement from the pursuit of the sensory pleasure that is linked to sensual desire, five senses, is a state without suffering, vexation, despair, and fever. It is the right way. The pursuit of asceticism is a state beset by suffering, vexation, despair and fever. It is the wrong way. Disengagement from the pursuit of asceticism is a state without suffering, vexation, despair and fever. It's the right way. So it was reference to this, that it was said one should not pursue 
the pleasure of the five senses, which is low, vulgar, coarse, ignoble, and unbeneficial, and we should not pursue asceticism, which is painfully noble and unbeneficial. I remember when reading these things, that sometimes you check. When you read it in Pali, you check on some of these words, and I already mentioned uh, uh, the low and the vulgar. Actually, it's not, so it's not in here yet. So, oh no, so this comes in the third section, where one of the words they use to define the pleasure from the five, from the five senses is they call it milha sukha. I hadn't seen the word milha before, and when I actually looked at it, Oh, actually, they have it here. It's on the section three. I'll leave it till then, if I may, so I'll just avoid that, because I looked up the meaning in the Pali dictionary. It's not a common word, it's milha. I translated it here as filthy pleasure. But it was actually it was specifically used in the Pali of that day to refer to urine, what comes out of you know, the watery stuff which you excrete. And literally, it was a very coarse word. And so, like, and it wasn't used like the real polite word for urine. So to actually, to translate it as it was written, you would say that those five sense pleasures are pissy pleasures. That's a coarse word, but that gives it the meaning that was intended in the suttas. Anyway, so I've jumped ahead of myself. So as reference to this, it was said, one should not pursue sensual pleasure, which is low, vulgar, coarse, ignoble, and unbeneficial. One should not pursue asceticism, which is painfully noble and unbeneficial. The middle way discovered by the Buddha avoids both extremes, giving vision, knowledge, leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. So it was said, and with reference to what was this said? It is just this noble eightfold path that is the right view, right motivation, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right restraint. I actually put that in there this time instead of right effort. Right mindfulness. And of course, what's the eighth factor of the eightfold path? I was hoping one of you would say right concentration and I say no. That is actually not what that word means. It is right stillness. And there was a a, a Chinese scholar who would come here many years ago for the range retreat. And uh, she was a professor at Stanford in Chinese, and the Chinese language. And she would come over here for a couple of months, every range retreat. When I asked her about that, I said, you know, in the Chinese canon, Sama Samadhi, now how is that translated? And actually, she said, well, it's obvious. It's right stillness. So not right concentration. No. They never use it in that way. It's always right stillness. Calm. And I keep emphasizing that point because if you think that the eighth factor of the eightfold path 
refers to concentration. It refers to something which you have to struggle to do. It takes effort to concentrate. And you can't maintain it very long without getting worn out, tired. Which is one of the reasons why when you understand that it doesn't mean um, concentration. Samadhi means stillness. States of deep stillness. And that means that this place, Jhana Grove, we don't come to Jhana Grove to concentrate. If we did, what would this place be called? A concentration camp. (laughs) (coughs) It's a stillness camp, which is why we try to move slowly, why we try to speak very little, if you possibly can, and why we learn is to relax and allow everything to become still. This is a very peaceful place. So it tries to um, signify the peace of samadhi, the stillness. And I was just talking with someone earlier about um, the different religions and we're talking about Gnostic Christianity. They have some wonderful statements in there. But even in the Christian Bible, there is one statement in the Psalms which says, Be still and know that thou art God. And that's you know, something which, uh, that's in the Old Testament. And where the heck did that come from? It doesn't really sound like the ordinary Christianity. Be still and know that you are God. And I think that's something which the meditative traditions of Buddhism did influence. Not to actually be faithful, not to keep your precepts, but to learn how to be still. You get this beautiful feeling of bliss. And when you disappear, that's why I often uh, suppose You can't really tell for sure that some of those early Christian mystics, in particular St. John of God and Teresa of Avila, you read some of their stories. And John of God, he would just go off into the bush, into the forest and meditate for a while and come out really blissed out. And when you see what he was doing, it was easier for him to let go and be still because he had this belief in a God so he just let God take over now I'm not suggesting that as a meditation technique here you can understand how it works because you let go and you trust in something else to look after you that's why it can somehow sometimes get deeper however that's just with the meditation it is some wrong view there but Nevertheless, it can feel that way. And um, also, that I've noticed in Christianity, that if you have unity, <coughs> so unity with God, then they make you a saint. What is unity with God? If you can have unity with that stillness and the bliss coming out of that stillness, that is like the experience of first jhana. 
So if there are any Christians here, and you get into jhana, they will name schools after you. They say, St. Eileen's uh, School for Girls. <laughs> they will, because you know, that's what they recognize. You've had a, this idea of a unity with the divine. And it's not divine, there's much more to our life than just the God. And it reminds me of one of those other statements in the Gnostic Gospels. I forget which um, Gospel this was in, but there was God sitting in his heaven saying, I am the, the creator, I'm the firstborn, the master of all that is, blah, 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 the usual statements. And then this is in the Gnostic Gospels. This Gospel is supposed to have been taught by Jesus. And, he's, and then the next thing is that God hears, no, you're not. There are other beings in this universe you're simply not aware of, God. Don't get above yourself. What, what? Who said that? And that's in the Gnostic Gospels attributed to Jesus. That's, to me, because it's a bit rebellious, I think that's quite cool. But anyway, I don't want to upset anyone and start a war. So please don't tell this to your Christian friends too much. Anyway, that's like that story of in the Grand Mosque in Mecca. On one of the ceilings there, there's paintings of, um, of the Buddha. Weird. Anyway, where was I? <laughs> Let's get back to the Sutta. So that's actually um, the middle way, the Eightfold Path, which leads... Uh, avoids both extremes and leads to all these wonderful things. Any questions about that before I carry on? Okay, here we go. Number two. One should know what it is to extol, to praise, and what it is to disparage. And knowing both, one should neither extol nor disparage, but should teach only the Dhamma. So it was said. And what, with reference to what was this said? I would actually explain in brief what the Buddha is saying here. And what he's saying is if you're going to praise somebody, that you know, it becomes like a personal thing which they can get proud of. If you disparage somebody, it's something which they can get very upset about. So you never actually mention the name of a person, you just say, um, nodding is not good for your meditation. You don't say that this person is a notorious nodder. You, know, you just say that generosity is an amazing thing to keep people going. You don't say, this person today gave so much and put their name on the wall. I always say when people like to be acknowledged for their donations, I call that not really a donation, but buying advertising rights for their ego. And sometimes they put that on the wall. This wall was, or this building was donated by Eileen. She didn't, but just, you know, what would that do? That's really not fair. So it, you can look all around Jhana Grove. Can you find any uh, lists of people who made this place possible? Of course we never do that in good Buddhism. We have, like, the Dhamma Hall. We don't have uh, the person who gave any donations for it. And even this all, I can't... Uh, avoid saying this, some of you know this because I say it at every retreat 
on this side of the hall, your side over here, the floor you're sitting on, the night before the opening day, it hadn't been completed. It was just concrete. You know what it is, if anyone has done any building or got a builder in to do some building? I asked them many times, are you sure this project is going to be completed by, it was actually the Easter retreat, I think 13 years ago. That's, I mean, what was that? That's 2009, is that right? Is it going to be finished? I said, yeah, of course, it'll be finished in January. And then a couple of months before January, is it going to be finished as well? There's a few problems. It'll be finished in March. Are you sure? Oh, yes. I remember the person in charge of the, the project said, are you doubting my professional abilities? And I actually didn't tell the truth. I, I should have said, yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it wasn't finished in March. I think it was finished in April. It actually wasn't finished. Because on the night before the retreat, this floor hadn't been completed. And the person who was supposed to be doing this floor, they were ringing up all types of uh, floor people, offering them extra money to finish it in time. The following day, we were getting all these dignitaries coming for the opening ceremony. And even one of those dignitaries was... Uh, the former Premier of Western Australia, Jeff Gallup. And now he was a good friend because those who are West Australians know that you know, he left his role of being a very popular Premier of Western Australia because of depression. And uh, he was also a really close friend. He was the best man at Tony Blair and Cherry Blair's wedding. They were in Oxford together. And, I, and he became a really close disciple, uh, Jeff Gallup. He came over here to get advice on how to overcome his depression. And so after that, I thought, wow, now I've got Tony Blair as a disciple, as Jeff Gallup as a close disciple. It'd be very easy to get um, Tony Blair as the next disciple with Tony Blair, he was very friendly with George Bush. And then I get George Bush's... I can, <laughs> I can save the whole world. <laughs> That's only a joke. I'm not a megalomaniac. But anyway, that, so Jeff, uh, Jeff Gallup was coming here. He's still, to this day, the, the main... Um, what's it called? Spiritual... main patron of Jhana Grove Meditation Retreat Center. I'm very happy to have him on board there. But anyway, back to the story, sorry. <laughs> of this um, uh, part of the floor. Five or six o'clock, the following day was Good Friday, as they say, the Easter holidays. That's when we were opening this place, and Saturday the retreat was, was starting. And there was no floor there. What do we do? There's something I tell, you know, uh, everybody, Venerable Chanda, who's getting a, a monastery over in UK, and everybody who's making monasteries, 
the place is only finished at the very last minute. And you can tell that however long, when you want to do the opening ceremony, it will only be finished the day before, if you're lucky. This one over here was finished the night before. No builders could come on the eve of Good Friday. So who actually finished this floor? The monks. <laughs> and especially the one I give a lot of praise for is Ajahn Santuti. He worked all night on this floor. Ajahn Mamali was involved as well, and quite a few other monks, and just finishing off this floor. So the floor you're sitting on on this side was laid overnight by monks to get it ready for the big ceremony in the morning. And sometimes I think that this is not how companies work or commerce works. This is how the Sangha works. We always get things right at the last minute. And that allows you to have stories to tell. When you have disciples, Ayachanda, when you're an old woman, an old nun, and then you say, oh, when I was building this place, it wasn't easy. <laughs> there are lots of problems. But I, I kind of like that. You know, the, the monks, just we get involved, we help out, we make it work. So it's not just we sit here and teach and eat, Yeah. No, I, well, well, yeah, um, uh, okay, but the praising, I haven't finished this section yet. <laughs> there we go, yeah, I did. Okay, so let's go back to the, the text. So, I'm extolling, disparaging, and failure to teach only the Dhamma. When one says... All those engaged in the pursuit of sensual pleasure are beset by suffering, vexation, despair and fever. They're bent upon the wrong way. One disparages some. When one says, I'm going to actually change this to, when one says all those who finish the, uh, the, the bamboo floor on the hall have entered upon the wrong way or have done wonderful things. Or when one says all those disengaged from the pursuit of sensual pleasure. All those who helped with the paving of this hall are without suffering, vexation, despair and fear. They've ended upon the right way. Thus one extols some. So the right way of actually saying it, there's all those monks, you don't put the names to them, who actually laid this floor, did a wonderful job. So you shouldn't really say the names. I'll give you that, but it's the, it's the, I think that's a wonderful thing he did. <laughs> And more importantly, not just praise, but blame. So we don't say all those contractors who should have finished in time are terrible people. One just said, not finishing in time and not keeping your promise is a terrible thing. That's teaching the Dhamma without actually disparaging anybody. So you just point out the wrong actions or the wrong speech or the wrong thought. You don't attribute it to a person. And that's the best way. Have I got out of that? <laughs> so, 
When one says all those engaged in the pursuit of asceticism are beset by suffering, vexation, despair and fever entered upon the wrong way, one disparages some. When one says all those disengaged from the pursuit of asceticism are without suffering, vexation, despair and fever, they've entered upon the right way, one, the one thus extols some. So this is actually mentioning people rather than just teaching the Dhamma. Just say, say all those, those monks who speak very fast, like I did just a few moments ago, have entered upon the wrong way. You never actually attribute it to anybody. You just, you just talk about the offence. You don't give it a name or uh, put it to a person. When all those who have not abandoned the fetter of being are beset by suffering, vexation, despair and fever, they've entered upon the wrong way, one disparages some. When one says all those who have abandoned the fetter of being are without suffering, vexation, despair and fever, and they've entered upon the right way, one extols some. This is how there comes to be extolling and disparaging and failure to teach only the Dhamma. And how does there come to be neither extolling nor disparaging but teaching only the Dhamma? When one does not say all those engaged in this or that have entered upon the wrong way, but it says instead, the pursuit of sensual pleasure is a state beset by suffering, vexation, despair and fever, it's the wrong way, then one teaches only the Dhamma. When one does not say all those disengaged from the pursuit of sensual pleasure have entered upon the right way, but says instead, the disengagement of such pursuit is a state without suffering, vexation, despair and fever, it's the right way, then one teaches only the Dhamma. So that's, I'm just going to go through this quickly, not because I'm trying to avoid something, but this is where whenever one is talking about wrong behaviour or right behaviour, it's nice not to actually mention that, uh, like, uh, Kim Jong-un threatening to unleash nuclear weapons or missiles, that's a bad thing to do. That's a bad person. You just say, you know, creating conflict in this world or creating war is a bad thing to do. You don't assign it to a person. You just mention, you know, the bad things which happen in this world. And that's a bad thing to do. And you say peacemaking, you're trying to find a way of, you know, bringing opposites together and so they can live in peace and harmony is a good thing to do, rather than saying that this year's Nobel Peace Prize goes to this person or that person. That creates a conflict. It's an interesting thing what the Buddha said. So, sometimes if there's any bad behavior in Bodhinyana Monastery, and I have to point it out, I never, well, I hope I never say, that uh, the monk or uh, that person who did that or said that, that's a bad monk or a bad person. I say that, say, spending too much time on the internet is not a helpful thing to do as a monk. You don't say, you spend too much time on the internet, that's bad. You make the Dhamma very clear, but you're not actually uh, causing sort of embarrassment and the seeds of conflict in the community. If you're running a business, 
You don't just say one particular person coming in late. You don't say this person always comes in late, that's really bad. Pull yourself together. You say coming in late. You know, when, we, when our people are even waiting for you, that's not a good thing to do without mentioning their names. Anyway, so it was, in reference to this, it was said, one should know what it is to extol and what it is to disparage, and knowing both, one should neither extol nor disparage, but teach only the Dhamma. Now, the next section. One should know how to define pleasure, and knowing that, one should pursue pleasure within oneself. So it was said, and with reference to what was this said? There are these five senses. What five? Forms cognizable by the eye, sounds cognizable by the ear, odors are cognizable by the nose, flavors cognizable by the tongue, tangibles cognizable by the body, that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual design, provocative of lust. These are the five senses. Now the pleasure and joy that arise dependent on these five senses are called sensual pleasure. A filthy pleasure, that's one connected to urine, bad word. A coarse pleasure, an ennoble pleasure. I say of this kind of pleasure that it should not be pursued. It should not be developed, it should not be cultivated, and it should be feared. Here, you know, you know what's coming next. Quite secluded from the five senses, secluded from unwholesome states, one enters upon and abides in the first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana. This is called the bliss of renunciation, nekamasukha. The bliss of seclusion, pauweka. The bliss of peace, upasama. The bliss, the next one is, I say is a goosebumps one for me. The bliss of enlightenment, sambodhi. I say of this kind of pleasure that it should be pursued, that it should be developed, that it should be cultivated, and it should not be feared. So it was with reference to this that it was said one should know how to define pleasure, and knowing that one should pursue pleasure within oneself. And this is actually the, one of the clearest statements by the Buddha of the different types of pleasure. He calls it in oneself, and I mean, it's like internal, because as I mentioned in a simile of the thousand petal lotus, a lot of times these deeper states of, measure, of meditation are inside where you are now. They're internal. And some of those other pleasures which one seeks from the five senses are ex external to you. So, and this is very clear, the Buddha uh, defines the five senses and that those five senses, it separates them out. That's the pleasure and joy that arise depending on five senses. It's called sensory pleasure. A filthy pleasure, a coarse, ignoble. It should not be pursued, should be, not be developed, it should not be cultivated, it should be feared. And quite secluded from those five senses is like an opposite of the four jhanas. And we all know that Calling the, fire, the first jhana, the bliss of enlightenment, Sambodhi Sukha, is a, you, it's very hard to, to criticize the Buddha, but it's not enlightenment yet. 
but it's like the taste of enlightenment. That's how it feels. So if you want to know what enlightenment feels like, you may not get enlightened yet, but if you had a first jhana, you get an understanding of what that pleasure of enlightenment is. You feel it. You know it. Not through your five senses, but your mind. That's why I always pause on that statement. It's, it's very powerful. And that's why at the end it says one should know how to define pleasure. And knowing that one should pursue the pleasure within oneself, not the other ones. Next, one should not utter covert speech, which is like you know, behind somebody's back so they can't hear it. One should not utter overt sp sharp speech. This is called samukha. It literally means in their face. So it was said, and with reference to what was just said, here, monks, when one knows covert speech to be untrue, incorrect and unbeneficial, one should on no account utter it. When one knows covert speech to be true, correct, but still unbeneficial, one should try not to utter it. But when one knows covert speech to be true, correct and beneficial, one may utter it knowing the time to do so. So if you think any speech is untrue, incorrect and unbeneficial, one should never utter it. It's like lying, deceiving. When one knows it to be true, correct and unbeneficial, no point in it, then again, don't utter it. When one knows it to be true, correct and beneficial, one may utter it knowing the time to do so. You don't just blurt it out, even if it's beneficial, you know the right time and place. Here, monastics, when one knows over-sharp speech to be untrue, that's you know, what you say in front of the person concerned, untrue, incorrect and unbeneficial, one should on no account utter it. When one knows overt-sharp speech to be true, correct and unbeneficial, one should try not to utter it. But when one knows overt-sharp speech to be true, correct and beneficial, one may utter it knowing the time to do so. Exactly the same as covert speech. Behind the back or in front of a person, you can utter that speech only if it's correct, true, and beneficial, but know the right time to do it. If a person is very busy, they had a very hard day, of course you don't say those things. If you know you know they're true and they're right, because it may be beneficial, but it's uncertain if it's the wrong time. Sometimes they will walk away, they're not in the right mood to hear it. That's one of the reasons why You've heard me say before about the, uh, the sandwich method. If you're going to say something to someone which can you know, really criticize them and hurt them, you don't start by saying, hey, you know, you came late this morning, or you weren't here for the chanting. Or, That's not how we, we talk to people. They will think that you don't care for them. So what we usually do the sandwich method, you start with praise. I've seen you working so hard, um, you know, 
organizing things for everybody, working so hard, looking after others. You praise them. And then there comes, that's the, the first part of the sandwich, the bread on top. <coughs> then when you think they're listening to you, because people like being praised, actually their mind is starting to open up. Please let us know the next one. And then you hit them with the criticism. But, you know, your work is so sloppy and you're always going out to talk to others, disturbing them. And then, if you stop there, then they think again that you don't really uh, admire all their good work. So you finish off with praise. That's the underside, the lower piece of the sandwich. And that means that when they leave your office, they know that they are valued. But they've heard the criticism very clearly. And there's a much better chance they will act on that criticism and improve their performance. So that's we call the <coughs> call that the, the sandwich method. And the next one. One should speak unhurriedly, not hurriedly. So it was said. And with reference to what was this said? <laughs> Sorry. It's only 12 minutes to go. I better speak hurriedly. <laughs> Here, <coughs> when one speaks hurriedly, one's body grows tired and one's mind becomes excited. One's voice is strained and one's throat becomes hoarse. And the speech of one who speaks hurriedly is indistinct and hard to understand. Remember when we purchased the nun's monastery at Dharmasara, we had it at an auction, and the auctioneer started off, this is a wonderful property, it's going on sale, and anyone who buys this will be very lucky to have it. And then he said, uh, maybe we can start at one million. He actually said that, and okay, uh, let's start 800,000. Then, okay, let's have the opening at 400,000. 400,000. Anyone bid 400,000, 425, to wait here, 450, 450, 450, over there, 475. He started really getting fast in the auction. And apparently that happens always at auctions. They go really, really fast. And we don't do that when we do the auction for my birthday here. It goes incredibly slow. That's why we don't sell very much. <laughs> but, because when it goes fast, you get excited. And, you know, your mind gets excited, and that's how the auctioneer gets you to put bids in, which you don't have the money for. Like we did. For the nuns' monastery at Dharmasara, our treasurer put his hand up, 600,000. Do I hear 625, 625? Do I hear 625 over there? Our limit was 600,000. That's all we could afford. And so, and so our, our bidder got so excited. 650, he said. And the treasure was standing next to me. He said, stop him, Ajahn Brahm, stop him. We can't afford that. I said, I'll come and have some faith. Our treasure did not have any faith. <laughs> we can't afford this. What am I going to do? 
They just have faith. And of course, eventually, that people wanted that beautiful piece of land so much, we got the money for it, eventually. <laughs> but anyway, it did actually show me the meaning of this. And when one speaks unhurriedly, one body does not grow tired, nor does one mind become excited, one voice is not strained, nor does one's throat become hoarse, and the speech of one who speaks unhurriedly is distinct and easy to understand. But you don't sell things at auction that way. <laughs> so it was with reference to this, it was said one should speak unhurriedly, not hurriedly. One should not insist on local language, and one should not override normal usage. So it was said. And with reference to what was this said, how does there come to be insistence on local language and overriding of normal usage? Here in different localities, they call the same thing a dish, a bowl, a vessel, a saucer, a pan, a pot, or a basin. So whatever they call it in such and such a locality, one speaks accordingly. Firmly adhering to that expression, insisting only this is correct, anything else is wrong. That is how there comes to be insistence on local language and overriding normal usage. And how does there come to be non-insistence on local language and non-overriding of normal usage? Here in different localities, they call the same thing a dish, blah, 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 a basin. So whatever they call it in such and such a locality, without adhering to that expression, one speaks accordingly, thinking, these, it seems, are speaking with reference to this. This is how there comes to be non-insistence on local language and non-overriding of normal usage. So it was with reference to this that it was said one should not insist on local language, one should not override normal usage. And it's, that is explained also in our Vinaya, where it said, monks, please speak, you know, as the people in that area would usually understand you. And that is sometimes why. Here in Australia, we have one way of speaking. And in Singapore, it's, it's actually more restrained. But over here in um, uh, Australia, depends actually what venue you're speaking in, over in Nolamara Temple, there's people from all types of society go there. And so sometimes, when I do do the, the dog poo simile, I don't insist on calling it dog poo. Sometimes I call it dog shit. And sometimes people criticise me. Ajahn Brown, you're being too coarse. But no, that's how people understand it. And the purpose of that is that people actually remember that simile. It speaks to them as they would use that language in their normal day-to-day -day life. Anyway, that's about as far as I go. Don't go further than that. So I am a good monk. Am I? I hope so. Otherwise you'd be left by now. So anyway, so with reference to what this, that it was said one should not insist on local language and one should not override normal usage. So the summaries. Here the pursuit of sensual pleasure is a, is a state beset by suffering, vexation, despair and fever. It's the wrong way. Because it's the wrong way, it is a state with conflict. 
Here, disengagement from the pursuit of sensual pleasure is a state without suffering. Vexation, despair and fever is the right way. Therefore, this is a state without conflict. The pursuit of asceticism is a state beset by suffering, vexation, despair and fever. It is the wrong way. Therefore, this is a state with conflict. Disengagement from the pursuit of asceticism is a state without suffering, vexation, despair and fever. It's the right way. Therefore, this is a state without conflict. What the Buddha is actually saying here that a lot of times when there is suffering and you're having a difficult time and nothing is happening which you expected, then that will always be one of the reasons why conflict arises. When you're a very peaceful and happy person, you're not pursuing sensual pleasure, there's no suffering, vexation, despair, you're not pursuing asceticism, then because that's a peaceful, happy practice, you have far less conflict. Have you seen when people are upset, it's easy to have conflict? It's one of the reasons why, it's one of the tests we do. If you've had a very peaceful day, and you have got a deep meditation, you know, when I say to you, Singapore girls can't get jhanas, then you just smile. You say, oh, you're testing me again, Ajahn Brahm. You never have conflict, you never get angry and upset. You know they can, I'm only doing that to see if it really was a jhana or not. Sorry? Is that a cause of conflict? No. <laughs> Very good, okay, fair enough. And anyway, they're not really Singapore girls or women. You're part of the human family. You're born in Singapore and you've lived in Singapore, but does that make you a Singapore girl? Or Singapore woman? Or, I don't know, I bet I'm not going to stop. I've only got three minutes to go. Here, here, the middle way discovered by the Buddha avoids both these extremes, giving vision, knowledge, leads to peace, direct knowledge to enlightenment and nibbana. It is a state without suffering, and it's the right way. Therefore, this is a state without conflict. The extorting, disparaging, failing to teach only the Dhamma is a state beset by suffering, and it's the wrong way. It's a state without conflict. You can still criticise, but you don't criticise a person, you don't say this person does this or that person does that. You just say, doing bad things is the wrong way. That's a state without conflict. It's teaching the Dhamma. You must say, all those people who go to the pub and drink alcohol, they're bad people. No, you say drinking alcohol is a state beset by suffering. That's teaching Dhamma, not extolling, disparaging people. Uh, we go. Sensual pleasure is a state beset by suffering. It is the wrong way. Therefore, this is a state without, with, with conflict. Is it? Sensual pleasure. Sometimes I tell people this and they get sort of concerned. <coughs> come on, come on. I'll go back to this and I'll give examples. Uh, 
the bliss of renunciation, the bliss of seclusion, the bliss of peace, the bliss of enlightenment, the four jhanas, is a state without suffering. It is the right way. Therefore, there's a state without conflict. It pacifies things. Covert speech is un- untrue, incorrect, and unbeneficial. Covert speech that is true, correct, but unbeneficial. Covert speech that is true, uh, these are states with conflict. Covert speech that is true, correct, and beneficial is a state without suffering. Therefore, it is a state without conflict. It's said at the right time. Overt speech that is untrue, incorrect, and unbeneficial is a state beset by suffering. Overt speech that is true, correct, and unbeneficial is a state beset by suffering. Therefore, these are states with conflict. Overt speech that is true, correct, and beneficial is a state without suffering. Therefore, it's a state without conflict. Speech of one who speaks hurriedly is a state beset by suffering, vexation, despair, and fever. It's the wrong way. It becomes a state with conflict. The speech of one who speaks unhurriedly is a state without suffering. Therefore, it is a state without conflict. This is why sometimes if you have an argument with somebody, you find out the more angry and upset they are, the more fast they speak, the more hurriedly. And instead of you falling into that trap, you can start to speak slowly. Yes, you tell the person who's angry with you. Yes, it may be that I did that thing, or but that was not why I meant to do that. It's incredible how when you reply to someone who's really angry and you speak deliberately slowly, how that calms them down. It's a nice way of overcoming other people's anger. Uh, insisting on local language and overriding normal usage is a state beset by suffering. It causes conflict. Sometimes people don't understand what you mean because you're speaking in Singlish and somebody else is speaking in Serbian or Serbian English and somebody else is speaking in Aussie English, all saying the same thing, but not understanding each other. So non-insistence on local language and non-overriding of normal usage is a state without suffering, vexation, despair and fever. It is the right way. Therefore, this is a state without conflict. Therefore, you should train yourself thus. We shall know the state with conflict and we shall know the states without conflict. And knowing these, we shall enter upon the way without conflict. Now, part of this sutta, right at the very end, is a really strange statement. The Buddha adds on the end, and it seems to have no logical connection which went before. Now, bhikkhus, Subhuti is a clansman who has entered upon the way without conflict. That is what the Blessed One said, the bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted the Blessed One's words. And that seems to be the only time that this monk Subhuti is mentioned in the Theravada. However, he's mentioned ex- extensively in the Mahayana teachings. There's no explanation why. It's just as if it was added in there, or it just said and would have no real connection with what happened before. Sorry? Is it in the Chinese 
that which I don't know. It's in the Chinese parallel. So, where did that come from? Who knows? So, it doesn't really fit in because the Buddha was just talking about um, don't uh, utter overt or covert extolling and uh, disparaging. <coughs> now the Buddha's um, praising. <laughs> so there's a bit of a conflict there. But anyway. So anyway, that's the, the sutta today. I hope it was okay. There's a few things there which maybe I should have uh, read it before I talk, talked about it. But anyway, I hope you found some of it interesting. Remember the Dhamma talks and the suttas are like buffets. There's some of the food which you have before you causes you uh, stomach problems. But there's enough good things there to eat in order for you to benefit from this. And I hope there's enough good things there so you can find it beneficial. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.